If you would take a copy of the scriptures and turn to Mark chapter 1, we will continue, Lord willing, our journey through this wonderful little gospel. Mark chapter 1. And let's start in verse 21, and we'll read verse 21 down through verse 34. Let's hear the word of the living God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was a man in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told her about him. They told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her. And she began to serve them. That evening, at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to know you, not as the demons know you, but help us to know you through the eyes of faith, through Christ Jesus. Would you make Jesus the altogether lovely one to us? Would you cause us to seek him diligently and to live the life of faith? that we would see Jesus and trust in him and, and that we would forsake anything else that we may have trusted in and trust only in Christ. And Father, would you send this, your word, forth here this morning because it is your word and with it, it comes your authority. Would you cause it to do all that you have uh, commanded it to do, that it would save the lost, that it would edify your saints, that it would build us up in the, in the saving knowledge of Christ. Would you, through this, your word, make us the Christians that you have called us to be. And do this, Father, for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. What is authority? That's the question we should ask. What is authority? Well, authority is Uh, The ability to enforce your rules on people, right? 
be one, one definition of authority. The government has authority, right? It makes laws, and it has authority to enforce those laws. But what, is, what does authority sound like? Have we heard authority? I mean, we, we get the concept of authority, but what does authority sound like? You know, when I was in the, the Army stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and yes, I'll still call it Fort Bragg, <laughs> even though it's changed now. Um, it was Fort Bragg when I was there. We had been given the task to gear up and go down to Haiti and put down a, a remove the dictator out of office. And we were ready to go. We had all of our equipment and ammunition. We had our parachutes on. Uh, and then they said, stand down. The guy's given up. So we got to turn all of our equipment in, and we didn't have to end up going. But then they brought us all out to the tarmac a day or so later, and the vice president flew in. He wanted to congratulate us on a good job for not going anywhere. <laughs> and I remember that because it was Al Gore. He didn't even come down the stairs to the podium that they had set up for him. He had somebody bring him a microphone. He stood at the top of the stairs of his airplane, and he spoke for a while. And I remember what he said. Blah, 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 blah. That's what I heard. Okay. And, and I thought it was a joke. You know, who the vice president. So what? If you, if you think we did a job, send the president. At least he's the commander-in-chief, right? But... I remember thinking this because I know, and, and a lot of people may know or may not know, the vice president is not in the chain of command for the military. The only way he becomes part of that chain of commands is if he temporarily or permanently assumes the duties of president. So he's, he he's basically has no authority. And I remember after he turned around, got on his plane, and left, then our commanding general came up to that podium. Now, we listened to him. Because he was in charge. He had authority. He gave the orders that commanded that entire division. And so when he spoke, we knew he was speaking with authority. Unlike the vice president, he was just speaking to hear himself talk. That general had authority. And so for me, that's what authority sounded like. The position that man was in, I knew that if he were to give me orders... I would either obey those orders or suffer the consequences. He was the highest authority on that post, in that division. Well, in the context of our passage, Mark has introduced us to Jesus' public ministry in Galilee with his, basically his, his thesis statement, if you will, in verses 14 and 15, where Jesus is going forth preaching the gospel of God and calling sinners to repentance and faith. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the kingly authority of Jesus as he commands people to repent and believe. We also saw his authority as he called men to follow him, saying that, I will make you fishers of men. And we see this authority because those men that were called immediately dropped what they were doing and followed him. Peter and Andrew were mending their nets. He dropped their nets. James and John were with their dad in the boat. 
And they stopped what they were doing, and they, they got out of the boat, and they came to Jesus and left their dad with the servants. That's authority. That is, is, is what authority looks like, what it sounds like. In our passage today, and for that matter, throughout the rest of this gospel, Mark is going to flesh out for us Christ's kingly authority. And we'll see that as we go through it. It is my hope and prayer that we, as we hear the word of God today, we will continue to get, a, get better acquainted with King Jesus. You can, we can never in this life, I think, know all there is to know about Jesus. I don't think we can in all eternity, for that matter, know the great mysteries of the incarnation and how Jesus can be both fully God and fully man. But we can, through his word, get to know him better. And, and that seeing his authority, we will humbly and faithfully submit to him, not, not out of fear, but out of love. He's, he's not a despot. He's, a, he's the king of glory. These gospel accounts are not just historical events recorded for us. They are meant to strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus and give us hope in whatever situation we find ourselves in because he, dear ones, Christ, still today exercises that same authority. And so we start out in our passage seeing Christ teaching with authority. Teaching with authority. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Interestingly enough, in Capernaum, uh, the city of Nahum, that's <laughs> what that means, uh, we find Jesus um, and we find the disciples with him. Andrew and Peter, of course, we'll see in this, later in this passage, Andrew and Peter lived in Capernaum. Now, they were from Bethsaida originally, but uh, they were fishermen, and so it would, would make very much sense that they moved to this coastal city uh, to ply their trades. Mark doesn't give us the details of what Jesus was teaching. Mark is like that throughout his gospel. He just states facts. Jesus was doing this. Jesus was doing that. Here, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. Well, I'm sure, well, I'm positive that he was teaching just like he was back in verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And, and, and why do you think that I know that? Well, in Matthew, Matthew 4, verse 23, we read, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. See? So he was preaching that same gospel. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And I'm sure there was much more substance to it. We know from other gospel accounts that he, he would read from scriptures. He read from Isaiah and say, hey, this is fulfilled in your time. This is being fulfilled now. Can you imagine hearing Jesus preach? He is preaching the gospel of God. He is seeking to save the lost. He is calling 
these lost people to repentance of faith. And he's doing that in Capernaum and the surrounding cities and region. Mark's focus is not on the content, but rather on the authority. He's focusing not on what Jesus said, but who Jesus is. This this God incarnate, this word in the flesh. The teachers of Jesus' day, they relied heavily on oral traditions. Um, Most of the time, they they liked to to preach their whole sermon quoting uh, famous rabbis of the past or or even the present. Rabbi so-and-so says of this scripture. So it's all commentary rather than focusing on the word of God. Now, after I, I read that, I was like, i got to be careful how much I quote other writers. Because <laughs> every time I was writing a quote in here, I was like, is this too much? <laughs> if we rely like those scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day on the teaching of others rather than on God's word, we very quickly lose authority. Our only authority as pastors, as preachers of the word, comes from the word itself. Not from our position but from the word. Now we do have authority as pastors over the congregation, but our primary authority is God's word. If we're doing anything other than what it says in God's word, we're, we have no authority. Jesus, unlike the rabbis of his day, when he preached, he preached the words of God as if they were his own, because they were. And the people saw that. They saw this man not quoting rabbi so-and-so or, or Pharisee so-and-so, but proclaiming, thus say the Lord. The prophets of the Old Testament did that, right? Not, hey, Moses said this, no, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus spoke with that same authority because he is the Lord of glory. So when Jesus spoke, it was the Lord speaking. Luke describes their reaction like this. He says, and they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. And of course, Paul tells us in Romans that the power of God is in the word, right? In the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to save all who believe, both Jews and Greeks. The word astonished here, though, it it does not do justice. You know, it, it wasn't like they were just, oh, wow, this is refreshing. No, it was more of a sense of dread. They were amazed, yes, but they were fearful as well. All throughout the gospel accounts, we see what happens to people when they realize they're in the presence of the holy. And these people were amazed at his, his teachings, and, and, and there was a sense of dread at the, the, the weightiness of the authority of his words. And, and I think we'll see that 
as we get into the next part of this passage. But I want to read a, a, a short explanation from R.C. Sproul. Quote, his teaching was supremely substantive. There was nothing superficial or light about it. This was the utterance of the one who was at the same essence of the Father. So Jesus' authority was rooted and grounded in God himself. That is what terrified the people. They said, never have we heard anyone speak like this, end quote. Of course, our confession of faith says in, in chapter 4, which we read this morning, it speaks of the authority of God's word. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. End quote. What we read next speaks volumes, and Pastor Thomas mentioned this several weeks ago. It speaks volumes of the spiritual condition of the people in this particular synagogue, and probably by and large of the, of the Jewish nation, their spiritual condition. Because we see, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. Now think of this. How could you sit through a worship service with an evil spirit in you and not have a problem with what's being said? Think about that. And that will give you a picture of the, of the, the nonsense that was being preached. Where this evil spirit could sit through an entire worship service and not be bothered. Now we don't, we're not told how long this man had this evil spirit and how long he had been a, a member of that synagogue. But think of this. Having this unclean spirit in him would make him or render him ceremonially unclean. And anyone who was ceremonially unclean could not go to the temple or the synagogues. That was forbidden. So the fact that nobody in that synagogue, not even the synagogue ruler, or not even the teachers of the law, realized this man had an unclean spirit. That shows the blindness of their eyes. And the lack of substance to their teaching. If they were proclaiming, thus saith the Lord, that evil spirit would have a problem because he did when Christ said, thus saith the Lord. He recognized the authority of Christ, which shows you that these scribes and Pharisees really had no teaching with authority. What would that look like in our day if someone could sit through an entire sermon with an evil spirit in them and not even be phased. What would that say about our preaching? Are we being true to God's word? We wouldn't be in that case. What does the gospel do? One, it, it saves the lost. But two, it offends the lost. It's an offensive message. And if you're lost and you're not offended by it, then, then we're not preaching it right. 
Hell is real. People don't like to hear that. Hell is for eternity. People don't like to hear that. You know, we have all kinds of spiritual, uh, mental band-aids we can put on to help us not see the reality of God's Word. And when we do that, we are taking away from the authority of God's Word. When we can make up our own little beliefs that, that can somehow ease our conscience to where we can live our lives however we want, we are saying that this has no authority over us. God's Word. And I think that was the condition of the Jews in Christ's day. They were so focused on their man-centered, man-made laws that hadn't been given to them by God that they totally missed seeing that Christ was the Messiah. That he taught with authority because he had ultimate authority. He was ultimate authority. Can you imagine their surprise? When this demon cries out. Oh, brother so-and-so. Oh my goodness, I didn't have a clue he had the evil spirit in him. But Christ recognized the problem. The demon also recognized Christ. He knew that he was in the presence of the holy. Terrified, he confronts Jesus. He doesn't confront him humbly. He confronts him with contempt, but also with terror. You know, even in the book of James, we read what about the demons? You believe in God, you do well. So what? The demons believe and they tremble. They have somewhat of a proper reaction, although they don't go the full step, the full to repentance and faith. But they tremble because they know. They are going to experience God's wrath for eternity. That's why they tremble. And they know they don't have a choice but to obey him. It's been rightly said, the devil is God's devil. God has him on a leash. And he can only... I always love the part in Pilgrim's Progress when he gets to the top of the hill of difficulty. And he's coming up to the house... And he sees these big lions and these two guys running away saying, you, gotta, you can't go there, they'll kill you. And he's, he's afraid. And it's, it's getting dark so he cannot see that these lions are actually chained, right? And finally the guy in the house says, look, don't worry about the lions. Just, just come straight on. And he does. And, and I always get that picture in my mind when I, when I say that God has Satan on a leash. He's God's devil. He is still evil incarnate, not incarnate. He's still evil all the way through. But he can only do what God allows him. Read the book of Job. Have you read the book of Job? God allowed Job to be 
terribly mistreated by, this, by Satan. Not to prove anything about Job, <laughs> but to prove everything about God. And so this demon recognizes who Jesus is. He knows what's coming and that he is powerless to do anything about it. How sad that demons recognize Christ, but so many humans do not. You know, if, if God would only open our eyes like he did for Elisha's servant, that we could see the spiritual realm, even just a glimpse of it. Maybe that would drive more people to Christ. Because we would see that we were really in trouble. But Jesus, he's having none of this demon. He's having none of this guy interrupt him. So he rebukes him saying, be silent, come out of him. First, notice Jesus won't, what, what Jesus won't do. Jesus will not accept the testimony of a demon. He will not accept the testimony of a demon. The demon said who he was. And apparently all these people heard it, but they didn't understand it. And so he commands the demon to shut up. I mean, if you read the, the, the Greek, it's, it's pretty poignant. It's, it's to the point. Jesus wasn't being polite to this demon. I mean, so how stronger can you put it than shut up, right? He tells the demon that. But, but he's not just telling him that because he wants him to be quiet. No, with the command <laughs> goes authority. And that demon has no choice but to obey. Second, Jesus is not just flexing his divine muscles. He's not just showing the crowd who the boss is. He really and truly had compassion on that poor man. And so he cast that demon out. Now we're not told, I mean, there's, you know, we, we sometimes get the idea, we just assume that everybody Jesus healed was saved. I don't think that's the case. I think we can see that in the in the in the, the ten lepers episode, right? The only one of them, Jesus told only one of them, "Your faith has made you whole." So we don't know what happened to this guy after the demon was cast out of him, but we know he was freed from that demon. Jesus truly had compassion on this man. And we see by what happens next that these commands are not just the words of some carpenter's son from Nazareth. They are the words of the living God. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. Now notice the, the reaction of those in attendance. It says, And they were all amazed, so that they had questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. Okay, so, so they're still focusing on Christ's authority and his teaching. And then, and then as a second clause to that, they, they, they mention his authority over the demons. I really would have loved to be 
sitting in that synagogue, hearing Christ preach that sermon. I mean, you know, we, we all like to say we'd love to see, witness him performing miracles. I'd love to hear him preach. Because that's where the power is. And the miracles just prove it. The miracles are just there to, to prove that what he says is true. Who he says he is, is in fact true. Remember, he says, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. What did John say? What were the miracles for? So that seeing you may believe in Jesus. And that you may have life, eternal life in his name. That's still the call today. That still should be the desire of every Christian today. To see people come to faith in Christ. And have life in his name. These people are all still overwhelmed by the authority of his teaching. As amazing as it is for someone to cast out evil spirits, their amazement is still primarily focused on his teaching. Add to that the fact that he can and does cast out evil spirits. And this crowd, they're they're fit to be tied. And so what do they do? They start spreading word about this new teacher in that region. And next we see Christ's authority. We've seen his authority in teaching. We've seen his authority over the spiritual realm. And now we'll see his authority over the physical realm. And immediately they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. In this passage, we learn several things about Simon. First, he's married. So that kind of smacks in the faith of Roman Catholicism that, that says, you know, their priests must be celibate. They must never get married. Paul mentions Peter being married. Not, not, as, not as something wrong. So we learn he's married. Second, we learn that Andrew, his brother, lives with him. And third, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law, lives with him also. That would indicate that she was probably a widow. It was common uh, for people back then to care for their aging parents, especially for the widows. If a widow didn't have a family to care for her, she was in a bad way. And it was not uncommon for an extended family to live in the same house. This is still practiced in much, many, many cultures around the world today, where extended families occupy the same residence. But of course, <clears throat> as much as we learn about Peter in this passage, this, this passage is not about Peter. It's not about Simon. It's about the Lord Jesus. Mark tells us that when Jesus was finished at the synagogue, he left and went to Simon's house along 
with the four disciples that he had called. And once again, Jesus will show his compassionate authority. Praise God that he was compassionate. Many people, many, many, many people benefited from his compassion. Even if they weren't saved, they at least physically benefited from Christ being there. As a matter of fact, many people came to Jesus just for what he could do for them. Remember, they wanted to make him king after he fed the 5,000. They're thinking with their bellies. Right? Wow, this man could feed us. He needs to be our king. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and they told Jesus about her. And, and we're told that Jesus takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and the fever leaves her. It's interesting, we read this account in, in, in the three synoptic gospels. Each one has a little bit different view of what took place here. Matthew writes, he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Luke who was a physician, writes, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. So these are not conflicting. These are not conflicting accounts. Okay. Uh, They have just a different focus of what they want the readers to see of Christ. It's not recorded the same in all three Gospels, but we get the same results in all three Gospels. And each one... Each gospel writer wants to show Christ's authority over the physical realm and that even sickness fled from his voice in touch. Recording his touch, Matthew and Mark wanted to demonstrate not only his divine power, but his loving compassion. To touch someone who was sick would make that person ceremonially unclean, especially if they were a leper, which we'll see later. But Jesus... Didn't care about all those superstitions. He touched a lot of the people that he healed. But he also healed with his voice. Luke focuses... And his focus will change in the very next part of the passage. But in this part of the passage, Luke's, Luke's focus is on the authority of Christ's words. Mark starts his passage speaking on the authority of Christ's words and then transfers it over to, to Christ's compassionate touch. And we'll see how those, the Gospels intertwine to, to explain this. Sinclair Ferguson writes, <clears throat> This miraculous healing was an act of wonderful compassion on the part of Jesus. But like all the miracles, it is a clue to the identity of Jesus and the significance of his coming. Think of what happened to Peter's mother-in-law. She was sick and debilitated. Her life, however momentarily, had become useless. What Jesus did was restore to her what she was meant to be, a whole and healthy woman. This miracle is a brief glimpse for us of what will happen when the kingdom of God comes in its final form, when Christ returns. He will come and restore his world under his authority. End quote. I also believe that these miracles of Jesus that he performs 
are small pictures of what he does to the lost. Because we find these people in hopeless, helpless situations that they can't do anything about. And yet Jesus can. And that's your condition if you're lost. You're in a helpless, hopeless condition. And there's only one who has the touch. There's only one who can, can command with authority. And that is Jesus. And he is your only hope. He is your only hope. So the word gets out. And what happens? Here come the masses, right? Well, I got my cousin sick and, and my aunt's sick. And my, my son has, you know, got a demon. So everybody hears about this authority. And what happens? After sundown, everybody shows up at Peter's house. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. You know, I I was never, I never had a problem watching horror movies if they were about, you know, zombies and stuff like that, you know, because I know that stuff's not real. But the movies I didn't like to watch are the movies that show demon possession. The demonic realm is real, okay? It is real. If you play with a Ouija board, you're opening yourself up. If you mess around with the occult in any way, you're opening yourself up. It's, it's something serious. A lot of people today don't even believe in the devil and, and that demons exist, but they do. They do. It's not something you want to mess around with. You wonder why there were so many demon possessions in Christ's day. Well, I don't know if we still have that same problem today you know this might have been just a phenomenon because satan was still trying to he was still trying to hold on to his property because remember somebody's there now that's pilfering his goods but either way we recorded in all the gospels except for john john doesn't record any um demons being cast out but in the synoptic gospels we have many different um, accounts of this. So what's significant here is, is it's the end of the Sabbath day. Now they can legally bring people to Jesus. Why? Because you couldn't carry a sick person on the Sabbath day. You could only walk a certain distance, uh, you know, according to the scribes and Pharisees. Otherwise, you're breaking the Sabbath. You know, in Jesus' day, they had added over, what was it, over 130, maybe 140 Sabbath laws to the one commandment that was given in, 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 in Mount Sinai. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Don't work on the Sabbath day. Well, what does that mean? Well, if you lift anything heavier than your coffee cup, you're working. If you walk farther than from one end of your house to the other, you're working. And on and on and on. And we'll see that confrontation later on in Mark's gospel when Jesus finally declares that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
Yes, there is a sense in which we ought to keep the Sabbath holy. Because it's God's holy day. It's not just a Jewish holiday. Okay, God set aside the Sabbath day at creation. And at the resurrection of Christ, it transferred that day to the first day of the week as the Christian Sabbath to commemorate and to celebrate what? The resurrection of Christ. Interestingly, all of Christ's appearance after his resurrection were, were on the first day of the week. If you look at the chronology of it. So the Sabbath is important, but that's not, that's not what this passage is about. This passage is still about Jesus and his compassion on those who were sick and demon-possessed. And so we are told that many came to him. Now Mark, Mark uses a hyperbole when he says "Then the whole city came. Of course, he doesn't mean that literally. A lot of people came. You know, not everybody was sick. Not everybody had a demon. But a lot of people, those who were sick, came to him. When the people heard of Jesus' healing power, they came to him. Luke records the intimate nature of Christ's works, this particular, even by saying, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed him. Luke, as the physician, tells us about the, the intimate, personal touch of Christ as he's healing these people. Have you felt that touch? Has Christ touched you? Has he brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light? He still has authority to do so. And he still has compassion for the lost. Well, in our passage today, we have seen the absolute divine authority of Jesus. He displayed his authority in preaching and casting out demons and in healing the sick, both his spoken word and his compassionate touch could not be thwarted by demons nor disease. This should bring great hope and joy to our hearts because this same Jesus is just as loving and compassionate today and he still has the same authority over all creation. These aren't mythological stories. These are actual events that declare the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and his work and his love. So, let's, let's get a little, some point of application. What should our reaction be to the word of God? Because we've seen the demon's reaction to the word of God. We've seen the people's reaction to the word of God. What should be our reaction to the word of God? We should revere God's word. We should love to hear it read, taught, and preached. We should love to personally read and meditate on it. It is, after all, the word of the living triune God. Another quote from R.C. Sprawl. He writes, In the synagogue of Capernaum, the Lord himself, the word of God incarnate, rose to speak on matters theological. 
When he opened his holy mouth, all present were stopped in their tracks, filled with amazement and pierced by a sense of dread to hear the truth proclaimed with such transcendent finality. That is how we should respond every time we hear the word of God. We are not listening to the word of scribes, preachers, or theologians, so our hearts should be filled with a holy dread and awe when the Bible is proclaimed. When you, end quote, when you read the Bible, do you read it as if God himself is speaking? All too often we read the Bible just like a storybook or a, histor- or a history book, right? God is actually, truly speaking to you and to me through his word. When you approach the Bible, is that how you approach it? There's no room. There's no room in the Christian life, in the Christian heart, for indifference, irreverence, or neglect when it comes to the Bible. Now, I want to qualify that very carefully saying, We don't esteem the book, but the one who is speaking through the book. We don't worship the book, we worship the God of the book. we got to be careful. Some some people have taken the Bible way beyond what it's meant to be and have placed it up on a pedestal to be worshipped. We can't go there, but we ought to esteem the word because it's God speaking to us. What is your attitude when it comes to the Bible? Do you delight in it? Is it it God's ever-present lamp for your feet and light for your path? Or is it just a hard read? When you read God's Word, can you say along with the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 that it is a delight, that you love it, I challenge you, I challenge you to go home today and read Psalm 119 and count how many different ways that psalmist loves the Word of God. Every time you hear commandment or word or statutes and so on, he's talking about God's Word. I challenge you, do that today. Read Psalm 119 and see all the different ways the psalmist loves the Word of God. And then ask yourself, Is this a reality in my heart, in my life? Is this how I react to the Word of God? If you are here today or are hearing this online and you do not yet know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're in a very dangerous position. The Bible says that you are spiritually dead in your sins. Should you physically die in that condition, you will spend eternity suffering under the just and righteous wrath of God. While you are yet physically alive, there is hope for you. There is. While you still draw breath, there is hope for you. God's word teaches that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is the gospel message. Jesus came and died for sinners, but He didn't stay dead. 
God's word commands, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus himself, the living word made flesh, invites you, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he also promises, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The word of God promises and threatens at the same time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But listen to this. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Repent and believe right here, right now. Why would you perish? Flee to Jesus without delay. Dear saints of the living God, all of you who are believers, I exhort you to cherish the word of God. I challenge you to see Christ on every page and to seek him diligently. I exhort you to properly react to the word of God with immediate and complete obedience as Christ himself, through the powerful ministry of his sanctifying spirit, gives you the grace, courage, and strength to do so. Cherish God's word. Hear its authority. Obey. As the song says, there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Obedience is not an option. But it is the way to to true happiness through Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ. This Jesus who has been wonderfully and powerfully displayed to us in pages of Scripture. Yes, this same Jesus is seated at the right hand of our Heavenly Father. And even now, even as I speak, He is praying for us. He is making intercession on our behalf. Learn from Him, love Him, and live for Him. Let's pray. Once again, Holy Father, you have set before us an impossible task. Impossible in our own might and in our own strength. And so empower us through the ministry of your Holy Spirit to live for Christ. Cause us to love him more. Cause us to learn more of him. And cause us to share our love for him and our what we've learned about him with others. Help us to be faithful in calling men, women, girls, and boys to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help our lives display the glorious gospel as well. And Father, would you do this for your glory as you advance your kingdom. And we do pray now that your kingdom come Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Father. And we pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. If you'd stand with me and let's...
think, let's sing this song. <laughs>